Welcome to the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Sveta Petrova, a lecturer in the Political Science Department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have increased their presence and become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, some of these parties have not only come to power, but remained in office in consecutive elections. So with the interviews in this series, we seek to interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in post-communist Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and is made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for the series does not constitute an endorsement of its contents. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor David Ost. He teaches politics at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in upstate New York. He's currently a member of the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Professor Ost has written widely on Eastern Europe, particularly Poland, with a focus on labor, class, democracy, and the new right. His books include Solidarity and the Politics of Anti-Politics, Workers After Workers' States, and The Defeat of Solidarity, Anger and Politics in Post-Communist Europe. His articles have appeared in a variety of scholarly and popular journals, and some of his recent articles include The Contradictions of Labor Support for Democracy, The Endless Innovations of the Semi-Periphery, and, and The Peculiar Power of Eastern Europe. Workers and the Radical Right in Poland, and the Surprising Right-Wing Relevance of the Russian Revolution. Good day, Professor Ost. Hello, thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be here. We're very happy to have you on the series. So let me ask you first, the law and justice movement in Poland has been defined as populist, as nationalist, conservative, far-right, far to mention just a few of the labels that have been used. How do you define it? point about populism is it's supposed to be for the people, right? The people as a whole. And none of these movements ever proclaim that they're for the people as a whole. Uh, they're for their people. They're for uh, a, a group of people that they present as representing the whole people. But they're always very much against others not just against foreigners, which is important. And of course, if you have countries with a lot of minorities, then they're against those internal foreigners, as they would call them. Uh, but they're also critical, very much so, of those with a different political creed, a political view, right? They consider them as lying outside of the realm of the real nation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, populist is just one aspect. I think the most important part of it is the first part, that they're right-wing, that these are right-wing movements that are trying to come up with new ideas and new frames in order to get massive popular support. You know, I've coined a, a phrase, rent pill, what I mean by that, these movements are right-wing, exclusionary nationalist, populist illiberalism. And if we take all these things together, right wing, as I explained, right? They're not left. They believe very much in hierarchy and in inequality. Not everyone is part of our group and not everyone is equally legitimate as a citizen or to govern. 
exclusionary nationalist because they're nationalist, but it's but it's for us often often as an ethnic group, right? That just representing our group, and we're very much against others. That means mm -hmm. internal others and external others. But their nationalism is always exclusionary and aggressive nationalism. Uh, the popular, the P, right, the populist part is this kind of new innovation. And actually, historically, that was the innovation of classic fascism 100 years ago. Hmm. The innovation of fascism 100 years ago was that it was the first time that a right wing movement tried to appeal to the people. Previously, until the 1910s, I mean, the socialist movements began growing everywhere in the West, beginning in the 1860s or so. And socialist parties forming one after the other in these different countries. They were the only ones talking about the people, the masses. We want to organize them. They all had a monopoly on that. The right at that time was, was always defending property and, and, and the elite, right? Officially, explicitly. Mm -hmm. We forget mm -hmm. that now, but... You know, you had monarchies and democracy was a dirty word for many people. Mm -hmm. And the left defended democracy and the masses. So the innovation for fascism, classic fascism, was that we're a right-wing movement that appeals to the people, that we mm -hmm. talk to the common people, to the working man, women as well, but with a separate place they uh, uh, box them into. But nevertheless, right, we, we're... a we're organizing the masses as well from a right-wing perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's the classic innovation of fascism, which of course is very much present today. And mm -hmm. the last point of this, uh, the ILL of, of Rentpill stands for this illiberalism. And what I mean by that is not just a critique of liberal democracy, which exists, but the desire of all of these movements to make it so that the opposition, so so that there are no checks on their power, right? Mm -hmm. Liberalism and why why a democracy started to be calling starting started to be called liberal democracy is to avoid the problem of the so-called tyranny of the majority, right? Where you get fifty-one percent of the vote and then you can run roughshod over the remaining forty-nine percent. So the liberal aspect is like, wait, you're in power, but there are restraints because there are other people who don't go along with you, right? And you have to accommodate them. These right-wing movements going from classic fascism to today are illiberal in that they're trying to eliminate these restraints on power. Again, they do it today differently than they've done it in the past, but things like buying up of the press and limiting opposition, um, buying up of the opposition press and limiting what the opposition can do, uh, so these are these are important aspects. Let me ask you quickly. So thinking about this radical right appealing to the masses, is there a contradiction between their acceptance and belief perhaps in hierarchy um, and then the appeal to the masses? How do they reconcile this? Well, because it's an appeal to the masses, mostly on economic grounds, but it's also culturally, right? All of these try to appeal again, beginning from the classic fascist times, to appeal to a kind of traditionalism uh, that you represent 
you're part of the nation, right? Nationalism is a total, total central aspect of this. You're part of this good nation. You're the carrier of those traditions. And so we validate you. You're the ones who were really defending these traditions and not the cosmopolitans, right? Not those who can make it in kind of other cultures. Um, but, right, they don't say that you're able to rule the same way, right? Mm. No, you need leaders who, who know how to deal with the other political parties and in the international realm. Uh, and, uh, right, we represent you from, from the top. But if you notice, all kind of classic, both classic fascist and contemporary populist right-wing economic policies are never about empowering workers, empowering people. They're more paternalistic, we will give you. These are grants from us. We are doing things for you. You thank us, but don't get involved so much on your own, right? Don't do mm -hmm. things, don't, don't, don't organize for yourselves. You know, they re replace civil society with the nation. Mm -hmm. Again, a kind of mystical category that they mm -hmm. represent. So that kind of solidifies this hierarchy. And yet it appeals to people like we're really serious that you are part of the people. Mm -hmm. So it's really the, the, the deployment of this concept of nation that helps them reconcile nationalism uh, with, with cultural hierarchies. And then on the economic front, the difference is paternalistic appeals to the masses versus real empowerment of those masses. Exactly, okay. exactly. So, you know, none of them are very much in favor of trade unions. They may do certain things that existing trade unions like, but they always present it as we're doing it now for you, mm -hmm. but we don't really need you to uh, um, be involved yourselves mm -hmm. because we do that for you. Mm -hmm. You spoke about the evolution of the, of the right-wing parties over the last century. And so I wanted to invite you to think about the evolution of the Law and Justice Party in Poland since its founding in the early 2000s till its first ascension to power in the mid 2000s and then to its second term in power now since the mid 2010s. What do you see that evolution to be like and how did it help the rise of the Law and Justice Party? We need to go back to uh, 1989 and 1990 to look at these developments, right? Because they're very much about kind of the right wing trying to find its footing. The right wing was kind of, was, was marginalized in the early 1990s. The right wing is trying to kind of resuscitate itself mm. and it developed chiefly because these successful liberal reforms of the post-communist period brought about that massive depression and that disorder, or not in the sense of riots, but the sense of kind of deconstruction of the old system without really it being sure what's replacing it. So there was a lot of dissatisfaction. There was a lot of anger about that. And the right wing saw this opening of trying to organize that anger, right? And so they started 
bringing up the nationalist dimension. So for example, right, it's not capitalism that's to blame because capitalism as a term was very popular. The reality wasn't so popular, but everyone loved the term because it seemed to be the enemy of our enemy, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the Cold War, we lost, we want what you have, you have capitalism, that's supposed to be great. So they didn't oppose capitalism, but they started saying that the problem is that it's not true Poles who are running the show. There's a way in which the right is trying to restore this concept of nation. Now, rather than going too long into a whole history, let me, let me jump 10 years, because the right in the 90s was always kind of limited in that they too wanted their country to join the big international institutions that were on the horizon. Yeah. Um, NATO and yeah. the European Union. These countries got into NATO in 1999 and into the European Union in 2004, formally, but already by 2000, late 2002, 2003, it was acceptable. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. clear that they were entering the European Union. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you get these right-wing parties beginning to then emerge on their own. It's like now, finally, the first time since 1939, some of them would say that we can truly be independent. Every country, of course, has its specific aspects. In Poland, one important element is that right? it's not just workers who are suffering who become susceptible to it. That is a very important base, clearly, for, clearly for peace. Um, and, and the traditional religious aspect, because peace is representing mm -hmm. A very close alliance with the Catholic Church. The other aspect, right, what really uh, started emerging in 2003, particularly in Poland, is that Poland, unlike these other countries, un unlike many of these other countries, Hungary is kind of similar and also having been a big power more recently until 1918. But in Poland, right, everyone knows that for a couple of hundred years, and then mostly the 1600s to the late 1700s, that Poland and the Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth was one of the largest states on the map of Europe. It's a very prominent power that is dismantled by its neighbors in the late 1700s, does not exist formally on the map until 1918. But, you know, this history has also created a sense among intellectuals of a nation that has been wronged, mm -hmm. right, by its neighbors, by the world, and we need to rebuild that. So you do get this kind of intellectualist support, this kind of nationalist support to asserting itself. Poland needs to, ought to play its rightful role. And there's where you have a clash with liberals, right? Liberals were saying, oh, look, it's a new world. You know, no country is going back to that kind of power that you had hundreds of years ago. These days you get power by playing in the game, right, by, by producing, you know, this neoliberal argument. Yeah, peace also gets support from, from this group. So kind of, you know, summing it up, where does it find, where does it get support from, what are its preconditions for its rise? Say first, the severity of the economic crisis, which the liberals mostly said we're sorry, we wish it wasn't so painful, but there's really not much we can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, some of them defend themselves and say, look, it wasn't, we threw people totally onto the street. And that's correct, right? It, it could have been much worse. In parts of Russia, it was much worse. Nevertheless, it still was a, a, a big transformation from the security that they were used to uh, with all its limitations, but nevertheless, the security of the state socialist system. And so the right appeal to them, that's this populist aspect. There's this traditionalist aspect of being very close to the church. The liberals weren't opposing the church. In fact, today, many of the left, much of the left has, you know, objections or, or, or you know, complaints that, that the liberals weren't critical enough of the church back mm -hmm. then because it's mm -hmm. become so powerful since then. Liberals mm -hmm. were saying, you know, the church, we don't need to bother about that. So peace also organized in that traditional way. And then they tried to organize on these grounds of really make Poland great again, right? They yeah. didn't say that, but they certainly yeah. could have. And that is a leitmotif, again, of Polish, of, of Poland's history that only after like 2003 or so enables them to uh, uh, emerge. Mm -hmm. So really then law and justice is a coalition block between three different constituencies. You have the social conservatives affiliated or uh, uh, sympathetic to the church is the first. The second one is the nationalist intellectuals or revisionists who are looking to bring a great Poland back um, on the world stage, um, or at least the European one. And finally, there are the workers who have been disadvantaged, who are suffering as a result of the post-communist transition um, and who like some of the paternalistic distribution that law and justice is proposing. Now, when yes, does I believe, this- I think that's so, right. Mm -hmm. When does this block come together? Does, do you see it uh, in effect in the mid-2000s or does it evolve later on? What, or no, in other words, just, what's the difference between law and justice in the mid-2000s and in the mid-2010s? Yeah, that's a good question because there is a, a big difference, right? Law and justice first uh, wins an election and comes to power in 2005. Peace at that time in 2005 was still protecting a general economic neoliberal program. Mm -hmm. That was a problem for them. Mm. In 2005, six, when they're in power, their main activities were, a, the big issue at that time was lustration, mm. get rid of the communists, these cultural issues, almost entirely cultural issues, mm -hmm. alienating the liberal intellectuals. They mm -hmm. moved much further into the Christian fundamentalist camp, like jumped into that. Uh, and, and they started becoming more anti-neoliberal, more populist in this mm -hmm. sense, right? That we're going to speak to non-elite issues. So then in uh, 2010, when you had the next presidential election, this, um, some of this emerged in 2005, but particularly in 2010, the soon after the tragic plane crash accident, uh, uh, where the, um, uh, uh, the president, the conservative president, the current political leader of Poland, Lech, uh, Jaroslav Kaczynski, this was his, his twin brother, identical twin brother, uh, who was president, killed in the plane crash. 
After that, they had a, a presidential election, which Yaroslav Kaczynski was the candidate against Bronisław Komorowski. And then they started shaping, framing this as not like where the where the uh, you know the the post-communists versus the communists as they had done before, but where the solidaris solidarizing faction, solidarity versus liberalne, mm. right? Solidaristic versus liberal. And mm. that's where they um, you know, started becoming much more clear that we're going to speak to these economic issues. And in 2015, when they won both the presidency and the parliamentary elections, and that they've been strongly in power ever since then, right, that's been, that's when they began their government of 2015 with a series of popular economic pro non-elite policies that even got some of uh, uh, domestic business a little upset mm. um, and uh, uh, right, made their move to consolidate their influence that way. So it's really a supply side story then of the right beginning culturally conservative and eventually moving on economic issues a little bit to the left. Um, again, to yeah, provide to the masses, uh, have a generous welfare set of policies while also prever- preserving some nationalist economic policies in defense of Polish businesses, right? Yes, yes, I, I, yeah, I do see that. Look, um, for a long time, really until 2015, the parties representing, you know, either the liberals who were kind of culturally left, right? Because therefore this expanding civil society, individual freedom, human rights, uh, not a society run by the church, right? So they're culturally left in that way. Uh, and the, the official left, which means the Social Democratic Party, the former Communist Party, after 1990, for the next 15 years or so, or almost, uh, almost 20 years, right, are um, trying to prove that we are not a communist party anymore. We go along with the market. And they became neoliberal. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were, because they were in power for some of that time, and they followed very much those same economic policies. Uh, So you didn't have a left party uh, available making that kind of making that kind of argument. These parties, the liberals and the left, they had a strong constituency. We know that from the 1989 or from the 90s, uh, but they did tend to squander it Mm -hmm. because they're not providing alternatives for people uh, in light of the changing society. And uh, peace does that. Yeah. yeah, they're not defending the workers against the consequences of liberalism. Yes, and, and workers and, you know, non-elites more generally. Poland has a very high, still higher than many other countries, except perhaps Romania, uh, in, in terms of rural population, right? So there's still a very high number of, uh, you know, part-time agricultural workers who, mm-hmm. who do some part-time work in industry. Uh, they've been they've been battered by the transformation as well, and uh, yeah, peace has also appealed to them both on economic grounds and on cultural grounds. 
Mm -hmm. So I want to return to this electoral block and its resilience because we've seen it now win elections twice, both for parliament and the presidency. But before we do that, let me tease out a couple of strengths um, of your arguments to this point um, that have to do with the civic embeddedness of the Law and Justice Party and its ability to mobilize um, citizens in its favor. Um, how do you see its relationship with civil society, um, including organizations such as labor unions, church organizations, socially conservative organizations more broadly? Well, okay, let's begin. Um, begin with, uh, right, you mentioned trade unions because it has gotten much support from the solidarity trade union. Now, um, solidarity, as many of your listeners would will know, right, was the name of the trade union and social movement that was formed in 1980 in Poland. Uh, and that brought together kind of all of societies, basically anyone who had a gripe with the government or had a gripe joined Solidarność because that was this organization that could counter it. And uh, it, was, it was suppressed, martial law imposed 1981. In 1989, solidarity wins. But what that means is that the whole system is transformed and so many of the uh, uh, more professional or politically liberal-minded activists of solidarity went off into government, local government, forming newspapers, private business, all kinds of opportunities because the system changed so, so, so fundamentally. And within solidarity became more of a workers organization and also became very much more a, 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 like a, a Christian trade union. And so in the early 1990s, you had the former, used to be called the former communist trade unions, which they were, for a while, but by 1989, I mean, they were just the non-solidarity trade union. So they start emerging as well. So solidarity becomes more the Christian trade union and the National Confederation of Trade Unions, which was the name for the official former communist union, really becomes you know, a more inclusive civic trade union and not Catholic religious, right? Mm -hmm. And more class oriented. Um, peace, nevertheless, uh, be, well, because the trade unions, as I mentioned, tended to be largely marginalized in the 90s and in the O's uh, by these parties, sometimes they would have individual trade unionists in their parliamentary contingents, uh, 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 par uh, parliamentary constituencies, uh, but they wouldn't do much to really win over their members. So again, in 2015, when peace begins its Solidar in the right solidaristic program, then it organizes meetings with Solidarity Trade Union. And again, they can bind on these Christian conservative elements, on these traditional elements, but they also start saying, you know, we're going to do some economic things you want, right? We will reverse the uh, higher retirement age that the liberal government put in place in 2012 or 13. And peace promised to lower it. And as the trade unions were asking, and they did so. 
um, also on certain other kinds of issues in terms of bad labor contracts, uh, unstable contracts that basically workers were easily getting exploited on the job, not being given a decent legal contract. Uh, and so they said, we're going to crack down on this. And they also um, did do so. So, um, and some of that even got some support from the non-solidarity trade union in 2015, 16, 17, when they were doing these positions. Again, right, solidarity is always, you know, kind of giving more to peace than peace gives to solidarity because it is a familiar aspect that they're not trying to empower these movements but just provide things for them. Soon after peace came to power, I think in 2016, they revived this tripartite council, mm -hmm. members of government, of, of uh, trade unions and of employer organizations. And they asked the tripartite council to come up with a new wage structure, particularly about minimum wage limit. So the tripartite council came up with a figure, doesn't matter what it was, came up with a figure, and then, whereas previous liberal governments had said, well, thank you, but we're going to do our own thing. He said, thank you very much. But, you know, we're actually going to raise it a symbolic like 15 Zwati because we think you set it too low. You know, again, it didn't make much of a difference, but it was the sign, right? We're the ones determining it. And, and thank you for your input. But we will take that. Um, so... Uh, the other crucial constituency has been the Catholic Church, and that has been huge, right? It's not just um, parish organizations, but also uh, it's this organization, new kind of organizations that were created called the Kluge Gazette Polskie. They became then a mainstay of peace, and they would have these organizations, these clubs, these meetings. Sometimes I would see it when I would go to Poland, uh, these processions that mm -hmm. would happen of several hundred, you know, very conservative looking and very kind of, you know, grim, mostly older people and um, uh, who, who would you know, march like a religious parade and carry pictures of the Virgin Mary, the Black Madonna, but also carry pictures of the president and his wife. You know, that that became um, a, a big way they've organized, right? So they have, they have this solidarity supporting them, the trade union, they have the church and the, um, these clubs of Gazeta Polska, and then some of the uh, right, these nationalist intellectuals who again want to reassert Poland's stance and assert it as a key player today. So then really what's happening is a rebuilding of the right through civic mobilization around socially conservative groups. Yes, and, 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 and in the last year or so, that's changed in the last year because mm -hmm. in politics, especially these kind of radical right-wing politics that peace represents, right? There always needs to be mobility, motion, an enemy. There always needs to be something else to blame for stagnation. Something else is, is wrong, right? Because these parties run on organizing anger constantly against some others, 
right? And so this economic populist element, there's no question that that was primary in the first few years that peace is in power. But economically, it's also no secret within the government, uh, within circles, that this is economically um, difficult to maintain. Mm. Poland has offered, also suffered a, uh, and continues to suffer, demographic crisis. The um, child care allowances were supposed to fight that, but they haven't done a, a very good job of of doing that. And also Poland, like every country in Eastern Europe, which was part of the European Union, that a large percentage of their um, workers uh, have left the country to go work abroad, right? So economically it's difficult. They're not going to, and they're not doing many more populist economic aspects. In the last year or so, they've been doubling down on these cultural, on this cultural war particularly around women's reproductive issues, namely a complete ban on abortion. Again, their Catholic church constituency was pushing him in that direction. Peace did not, Kaczynski made a little pose that we're gonna have parliament do it. It brought out massive protests like the country had never seen by regular women from 15-year-olds to 95-year-olds, mm-hmm. right, right, appearing um, throughout the country. So they backed off on that. But about six months ago, uh, in late 2020, they had this the Constitutional Court, which has been under their control. They took control of that soon after coming into office. Part of their illiberal aspects, the removing constraints on what we're able to do. Uh, so that court simply uh, announced that no, the constitution doesn't allow it. So they've had all this kind of um, cultural policy. And in the, and then a, a few months ago, they're also taking on a real kind of war on, on, on the academy. So, you know, on cultural issues, that's the big fight right now. Again, they're not talking about any more populist economic programs. The, the attack, again, on, on the press, because they've been, Orban mastered this in Hungary, and Poland now is explicitly, again, in the last months trying to follow, namely that you have a businessman or a business that is allied to the state and to the ruling party, buying up on the free market, the press, and then installing their own people, and then saying, we don't have press censorship, but you know, we just put limits on what that press can do. So uh, the state company, uh, the state company, uh, the oil company, Orlen, just a couple of months ago, bought up a whole network of local newspapers, and uh, you know, that gives them the power as time goes on to replace people. And they're doing it slowly, right? Getting getting people done. And, um, you know, some of them hope to dismantle or quiet their main opposition of press, the daily Gazeta Viborcha or weekly Politica, uh, because uh, some of them, they have some some of their stockholders, stock owners, so owners of the company are 
foreign companies. And so they say nationalization of the media uh, and that would mean subordinate, subordinating them to companies that are loyal to the ruling party. So again, right, these are different ways of eliminating opposition. That actually leads me nicely to the last question that I wanted to ask you today. On the one hand, you talked about um, the Law and Justice Party constraining, undermining some expressions of, civ of the civic and the political opposition. And of course, the EU criticizing them for that. Um, on the other hand, you talked about how over time law and justice started with um, primarily cultural appeals to a constituency, but then eventually moved to more economic redistribution that solidified um, an electoral bloc um, and in part co-opted unions into the process. Yet after coming to power, they've reinvested and continued rebuilding on the cultural elements and doubled down on the cultural policies, somewhat abandoning their economic appeals. So, so given that, given the state of the opposition, given the policy proposals of law and justice, what do you see as some of the challenges that the movement might be facing going forward? How, Wait, how can uh, we think about the resilience of that movement in the future? Well, look, anytime you have a, a party in power for a long time, there are differences among themselves, right? So um, peace is actually like the ruling party is, is, is made up of uh, law and justice is the dominant group by far, but technically and formally, they have a, they have a parliamentary majority thanks to a couple of small right-wing parties that have been usually part of peace, but have left because they were kind of even more right-wing, one might say, just to put it simply. And um, uh, so there are some differences now within that coalition. We haven't talked about COVID. And um, mm -hmm. obviously this has been a huge problem for countries everywhere and for political leaders. Nevertheless, as I say, just in the last week, the, uh, the leader of what has been until recently and may still be right, the largest opposition party, the Civic Platform, gave this interview in the main newspaper, in which is it's a topic for another conversation. It's about the most remarkable political interview with a leader, with a, with, with a, the leader of a main opposition party, who this whole interview is saying, well, you know, I can't really do anything now. There's no elections. We have to wait till elections are happening. Um, yeah, you know, there, there's not much really to talk about or to organize. Hmm. You know, we're, you know, I'm not a revolutionary. I can't really change things. So let's just wait and do nothing. It, it was just unbelievable, right? Because as people have pointed out, you know, others are criticizing peace correctly because of its COVID policies or because of its empowering this economic elite, because peace has had this economic populist program as we've talked about, but they're also now trying to control the press. They're beginning to create that domestic capitalist class, which was created earlier by Orban in Hungary to take over like the media. And they're doing that, right? And, and, and there's been a big scandal with 
because the opposition press has done a great job in showing that the um, CEO of the state-owned oil company that's buying up all the press has immense corruption on his side. And they're publicizing that. And an opposition party could say that. So yes, neither peace nor Fidesz say we insist on staying in power for 500 years, right? Hitler's thousand-year right. They don't say that. They do understand that you know, they're trying to limit opposition, and Hungary has gone very far in that way. But you know, um, they're, yes, they can be challenged. They can be, they can be defeated. They can be removed from power, right? So it is possible that after being removed from power for a bit, right, they couldn't come up with a, a real strategy among themselves, and that brings to place a more formidable and a more repressive right wing after that. You know, so that's something I think we need to be aware of by following both political developments and, of course, the crucial economic developments, right? Because, you know, fundamentally, I, I, you know, we all have our disagreements and, and so many views on this, but, you know, I, you know, I do think that the, the, the economic conditions are central. Um, mm -hmm. So if I could paraphrase, then the challenges ahead of law and justice you see primarily in the internal divisions of the coalition, as well as the state of the economy in the country. Yes. Okay. Well, Professor Oss, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation about the law and justice movement in Poland. Uh, we certainly look forward thank to you your so future much. work on this topic. The book manuscript that you're working on currently is titled Workers, the Neo-Fascist Allure and the Transformation of the Left. That's a tentative title. Yes, the transformation of the left is a whole nother topic I didn't really talk much about, but perhaps another time. Another time. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening, and we hope you will tune in for future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website, europe.columbia.edu. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe.